cats and kittens. We are back with another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando Cast Nerd Alerts. <laughs> because, well, not only are we talking about uh, one of the most important bands in the history of rock and roll, but today we're talking to a dude who is largely responsible for the success of those four scruffy teenagers from Minneapolis. If you are fortunate enough to go out and buy the brand new box set from Rhino Records, it is the replacement's 40th anniversary edition of Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash. It's a deluxe edition bundle, and it comes with uh, four CDs, uh, the LP, uh, bumper stickers, a button set, a fantastic book. But if you read through the liner notes, you will read the following from John Bream, who was a critic for the Minneapolis Star, and he wrote this back in 1979 about my guest today. Peter Jesperson is not a disc jockey on a far-reaching radio station or a columnist for a big circulation newspaper, yet he is the most important rock music tastemaker in the Twin Cities, the gatekeeper to the hip crowd, the guru of the underground, and the godfather of of the rock cognoscenti. Ladies and gentlemen, today I am presenting for his second appearance on the Brando cast, the legendary Peter Jesperson. I don't know what to say, but thank you for that intro. Uh, well, you, you know, it's all true. And, and there's, there's been so much Peter Jesperson in the air recently. Cause there's a bunch of really cool documentaries that have been made about the the sort of the late seventies, early eighties music scene in Minneapolis there. Uh, and they all feature you because you're such, you were such a huge part of that scene. Uh, not just as a founder of twin tone records, but also f- because of your days promoting shows at Jay's Longhorn bar. And then eventually the seventh street entry. Uh, and of course the time that you spent at Orfolk Joe Opus, the great, underground uh, record store in Minneapolis where you probably told more people than you can remember what they should be listening to and who they should be going to see live. And of course, maybe your favorite band, The Replacements, you're largely responsible for. So I cannot wait to do a deep dive today into this fantastic box set that you guys have put together in conjunction with Rhino Records. So before I say anything, I just want to say congratulations. Thank you very much. We've worked uh, hard on it for a better part of a year, and, and um, I'm super proud at how it turned out. So thank you. Uh, now, obviously, you produced the original Sorry Ma. Co-produced. Uh, it co-produced, of course, with with along with Paul uh, Westerberg. And uh, and who was that? Steve Felstead. Steve Felstead, right, of course. He was Duh. the engineer and co-producer. Uh, so now, 40 years later... <laughs> You go back in and you listen to old tapes. Uh, you know, how did you start that process? Basically, we've got a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a enthusiasm coming from Rhino these days because of the recent uh, sets that we have done. Uh, I was uh, a consultant on the first three, uh, which were live at Maxwell's, uh, followed by the uh, reexamination of the uh, Don't Tell a Soul album, which was called Dead Man's Pop. And then uh, uh, another look at uh, Please to Meet Me last year. So um, it occurred to us that in uh, 2001, uh, in, in 2021, rather, it was it was the 40th anniversary of uh, the, the first replacements record. It seemed like an appropriate time to um, take a look at that one. So as we started to unearth tracks, uh, we found that we had, there were just so many good extras that we could include that we just sort of went for it. Uh, ended up putting a hundred tracks in the in the package, uh, sixty seven of which are unreleased. And um, we one of the things that we uh, all agreed on. I produced it with the, the great Jason Jones from Rhino Records and and the great Bob Mayer, author of the Replacements biography, Trouble Boys. And um, we all said from the get go, it'd be wonderful if we could include a complete live show from this era in this set and. Uh, uh, we had two or three that we discovered uh, in re-listening uh, that, that could have worked. But uh, when I heard this uh, particular show from January of 1981, it was not their first uh, performance at the 7th Street entry, but it was um, probably, I think their first show there had been in September of 80, actually. So it was a few months later, five months later. But um, 
it, it was when we unearthed this show, it was just magical. We thought it was the perfect, um, the perfect snapshot of what they sounded like that first year. So um, we're just really pleased with how it came out. Now, replacement fans forever have been able to watch a 7th Street show on YouTube with a whole bunch of songs from Sorry Ma. So what was that? That because it was pro. It seemed like it was pro shot in a way. What is that footage? Well, when uh, if you look back at the beginning of Twin Tone, our first releases were a set of three EPs, uh, and then those did well. And we were we were looking at what to do next, and we decided that we wanted to do a compilation record. And I was. In particular, just through my work at the record store, I was completely smitten with a, a compilation that had come out a couple of years before uh, called the Berserkly Chartbusters. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it was the first time we'd heard Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond, which was, you know, of course, a huge life-changing song for all of us. And and uh, and the whole label Berserkly had such a great vibe to it. Um, we just loved this compilation. It had the Rubenews and Earthquake and Greg Kinn. Uh, and a couple of Jonathan Richmond songs. And so uh, I wanted to try to do something, you know, that would be maybe as cool as, as Berserkly or try to come as close as we could uh, to the Berserkly Chartbusters record. And that became an album called Big Hits of Mid-America Volume 3. Initially, we were going to do a single album. Then as we started recording people, we wanted to document um, the current scene in Minneapolis at the time. And there were just so many bands, some of which... Uh, uh, you know, had a couple of songs on the compilation, so it's, it, it uh, uh, grew into a double album. So fast forward to uh, 1981, and we had thought about doing another Big Hits of Mid-America, and then we thought, well, maybe we should just try to do a live recording of, you know, kind of the cream of the crop of the Minneapolis bands at that time. And so that's what you're talking about was this video that's been on YouTube. Um, and that had just everybody that was uh, performing uh, in that 7th Street entry uh, club at the, at the time and, uh, you know, included the replacements in Husker Du and Rifle Sport and Man Sized Action and all the bands that were around at the time. And um, we actually had a name for it. We were going to call it Soundcheck. And we had uh, sign-off forms for all the bands saying that they could send it to be filmed and recorded and that this might be a, a, a box set of some kind. Uh, down the road a piece, and it just got very complicated. Um, I don't think anybody really was opposed to signing off on it, but to be honest, it just, there was so much, we just didn't know how to boil it down to uh, a manageable, affordable project that, that we could put together. And it just kind of went by the wayside. So those, uh, those that's that's the story on that, basically. And, and uh, the replacements set what was was really good but one of the issues with it was they were so out of tune on a lot of it that it kind of maybe put a little bit of a wet blanket on the idea of trying to use that in this box set or in something separate later and you know the band was reluctant i was reluctant we just all felt like it was just man what do you do uh you know great performance a lot of spunk and and fire but uh but just you know the, the tuning was just an issue and and why we didn't catch it while it was going on, I don't know. But uh, just you get caught up in it. it was, there was a lot of activity. We had a mobile unit. We had several cameras in the room. And maybe people weren't minding their P's and Q's in terms of the tuning. So that's that's the story there. Well, as a mega fan, I will tell you that um, we'll take anything we can get. And right. that footage has been like mana from heaven for so long because there's just not enough footage of them. And if the Saturday Night Live appearance ever gets put on YouTube, it gets instantly taken down. So, you know, anything with Bob is like, holy Christ, this is incredible. You know, they one of my one of my jobs is, uh, is that when I fell into the management role with the band was uh, to make sure that they weren't being videotaped by anyone ever. Mm. And because they didn't want, they hated videos. They didn't want to be in, involved in the making or promoting of videos. And so uh, that's part of the reason there isn't much. Uh, and this was one that obviously they consented to. So, um, and there are a few scraps here and there that they you know, leaked out. We didn't see somebody filming someplace in the back or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, you're right. There's just not much live footage of the band, unfortunately. Well, here's the cool thing. You guys have put together three 
incredible videos in conjunction with with this uh, 40th anniversary set. Uh, three of the best videos that the replacements never made. You know what I mean? I mean, they're <laughs> just, they're just uh, you know, I'm going to mention them because we're going to Peter and I are going to do a deep dive on on a whole mess of the songs that are that are on this um, this fantastic new box set. But the videos that that you've put out for I Hate Music, Shut Up and Taking a Ride. Uh, you know, I said to my brother Ryan, who you know, man, if the video for Shut Up or Taking a Ride or whatever came out back in the day, they would have been the coolest fucking band in the world. So, you know, you know, congratulations on the videos that have been released in conjunction with the box set. Thank you. All right. So let's do this. I asked when I asked Peter to come on, I said, pick a bunch of songs so that we could just kind of get into, um, you know, what went on to to make this phenomenal record that has stood the test of time. So the first track that we're going to listen to and get Peter's thoughts on is a track called Try Me. Now, Peter, what's the importance of Try Me for you? Well, Try Me was the very first demo that the band recorded. Uh, nobody's 100% sure how or where it was recorded. We think it might have been recorded by a guy uh, who was a friend of Westerberg's who had been in a couple of bands that Westerberg was in prior to the replacements. His name was Jeff Jodell. Uh, and so he had done some early recordings of the band. And um, this uh, they did... I believe four songs. We've included three of the four songs in this box set. And Try Me was the very first one. And I think it's a, an outstanding song. I wanted to put it on the 2008 CD reissues. And for whatever reason, it was one that Paul Westerberg did not green light for that project. Um, his beef on it was that the multi-tracks, the four-track uh, cassette recording of it was lost. So all they had was the two-track stereo. And they had put a vocal effect on Paul's voice at his request. Uh, and it, so it was uh, printed onto the actual recording and it couldn't be removed. And he just in later years did not like the effect, said he didn't want to release the track. And I was broken hearted back in 2008 that we couldn't include it. But, um, you know, he had uh, green lighted plenty of other things. So I, I just uh, took the high road and said, OK, we revisited it on this set, and uh, for whatever reason, he decided to green light it this time. So um, that's what's exciting about it. And also a very uh, interesting fact that we found out sort of later, um, Paul had given me a cassette in spring of 1980, brought it into the record store where I was working. That was the first time I ever heard them. But we discovered after I got to know him that they had actually mailed a copy of Try Me into Twin Tone as uh, a submission to be part of a radio station contest called Songwriter that we did in collaboration with a, a, a FM station called KQRS. And it was, uh, there was a panel of people listening to the tapes and we put together a compilation album uh, on Twin Tone uh, or through Twin Tone and KQRS. And uh, I, don't, I didn't listen to the, the replacements tape as I said, we had a panel of people listening to them because there were so many submissions and whoever listened to it, put it in the, you know, the reject pile. <laughs> so uh, after Paul told me, hey, we had mailed this tape to you, I went through the box of rejects that we had in the Twin Tone office, you know, under a desk somewhere. And I found it. And I was like, oh, my God, how could we have missed this? But anyway, that's the way uh, that's the way the ball bounces sometimes, I guess. Um, is there any chance that you still have that cassette? I do not. And I, you know, that's a, I've moved uh, several times since, uh, 19, you know, the 1980s. And it's one that I guess has just been lost in the shuffle. And I, I, I could, you know, kill myself for, you know, not having protected it a little better, but, uh, I do still have the four song demo that Paul gave me. So, uh, I, I was very mindful of that anyway, you know, at least. Well, well, that w which will hopefully one day when they build the great replacements museum uh, in Minneapolis, maybe that could go in the replacements museum. Actually, it's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right now on loan. So, oh, it's in, is, is it's it really? In, yeah, it's in Cleveland. Yeah, but that's phenomenal. Is there some sort of like what? What's it? What's it a part of? It's a part of a exhibit of Midwestern music. They're, they have several twin tone things and replacements things and Minneapolis things in there. So yeah, there's there's a number of items uh, 
there. I have lots of stuff in, okay. in their uh, collection on, on loan. That, that's <laughs> mind-blowing to me. I'm mad at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they have not put the replacements in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm mad at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they they denied Iron Maiden their rightful spot this year. Those sons of bitches. <laughs> Quick tangent on the Minneapolis scene. Um, my brother and I went and saw Bob Mould a week ago at the Terragram Ballroom in uh, Los Angeles, California. Fred Armisen jumped up on stage to do five Who's Do songs, Peter. They did Flip Your Wig, Hate Paper Doll, uh, I Apologize, Makes No Sense at All, and New Day Rising with Fred Armisen. So that was pretty fucking cool. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. And Bob sounds as good as he ever has. So there's that. All right. Moving on to the next replacement song that's on this very special release from Rhino Records. It is I Hate Music. And this is also the first video that was made for this release. So, Peter, give me your thoughts on I Hate Music. Uh, well, this is a recording from January, I mean, January, July 21st, 1980, uh, when I had gotten the demo from Paul Westerberg in the spring, the four-song demo. I just went absolutely out of my mind over it and immediately talked to my partners at Twin Tone, said, you know, we've got to sign these guys. We've got to do an album. And my, uh, the, the main partner, um, not my main partner, we were all equal partners, but anyway, the, the, the guy that I had to convince was, uh, uh Paul Stark, uh, our third partner, Charlie Hallman, just trusted by judgment, just said, if you think it's an album, let's go for it. Paul Stark said, Peter, Peter, calm down. Uh, let's, let's, uh, you know, they're brand new, you know, the bass player's 13 years old, you know, let's like take, let's take this slowly. Um, and, and we should probably think about starting with a single first. And I said, no, no, Paul, you don't understand. They have lots of great songs and I think we need to do a full LP. Um, he was not convinced. And so I said, let's bring him into our, the studio that we did most of our recording in back in those days. It's called Blackberry way, uh, in, in a little area called Dinky town, which is, uh, adjacent to the university of Minnesota. And, uh, and let's bring him into the studio and, and roll some, uh, just two track recording uh and and see what we got uh, and, and if and if, if you if we do that and, and you don't agree with me so be it and so they came in we set up they'd never been in a recording studio before uh, and uh we rolled tape and in about 20 minutes they knocked off 12 songs and uh by uh by the end of it i remember i was kind of looking out of the corner of my eye sitting my partner and i sitting at the sound desk there in, in the recording studio in the control room and uh, I kept kind of peeking at him, and uh, I saw him stifling a grin uh, after they'd done seven or eight songs. And by the time we got to 11, 12, he, was, uh, he just looked at me and he said, yeah, you're right, we're talking album here. I mean, it was just, it was a, an absolute balls to the wall, uh, do or die sort of moment for the replacements. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't like they wouldn't have gotten a deal if they had an off day or anything, but I mean, it was just so completely convincing to my partner that, that's basically where it all started. So this version of I Hate Music is from that very first uh, recording in July of 80. That is incredible. And also, I'm just surprised that they didn't show up hammered, that they actually showed up for themselves in that moment in time and delivered. <laughs> because replacement fans, if you said, well, you know, they showed up uh, originally and they were so drunk that we couldn't do anything. We had to wait until they sobered up. I'd go, yeah, of course. But, uh, ah, but you see, <laughs> these were the days before they were getting so drunk that they were messing up, you know, that they were shooting themselves in the foot. This this was they were um, they were on their best behavior. I got to say it was still wild and, and uh, irreverent. And, uh, you know, they were you know probably uncooperative in several ways. But, man, it worked out real well. Why did you guys decide to make that first video for I Hate Music in conjunction with this release? Well, these were really done. Uh, this was I had less involvement with the making of the videos, to be honest. Uh, it was done uh, with a gentleman by the name of Peter Hil Hilgendorf, uh, an old friend from Minneapolis who lives in Seattle now. And he's got I feel bad. I can't think of the name. Pine, Pine Street uh, is the name of the video company. I believe that's the name of the, the people who made these wonderful videos. And so these were more marketing tools. Um, and, uh, I wasn't directly involved in it, but that's, it was, they basically proposed these to, uh, Rhino and Bob Mayer was involved in, 
uh, kind of uh, monitoring, you know, the ideas and uh, massaging them when he thought they were going astray or whatever, but they came uh, to uh, an agreement on what they wanted to do. And, and so that's, um, that's what I hate the video for I Hate Music is. Okay, well, I'm going to insert uh, the video for taking a ride into the discussion right now. Without seeing it, can you identify some of the characters that are in the video for Taking a Ride? Like the man behind the counter in the um, in the record store. That's the that's the uh, one of my dearest friends, Steve McClellan, who was the man behind First Avenue and and actually well before it was First Avenue when it was still called Uncle Sam's, he was working there, and then it became Sam's Danceteria, and then and then later First Avenue. Um, so he was really. Um, I mean, I don't even know how to describe Steve McClellan. He was so important to the Minneapolis scene. He was artist-friendly, paid people more than they probably deserved in some cases. Um, he was very, very uh, helpful to the scene. So <laughs> Steve actually works at that. There's a, a little complex in an area called Loring Park right on the edge of downtown Minneapolis uh, called Loring Park. And uh, there's a, a place called uh, Hi-Fi Hair and Records run by a, a gentleman by the name of John Clifford. And he had a hair salon and then a, there was an adjacent space that opened up and he thought, I'm going to put a record store in there. And several of our friends worked there. Steve McClellan, our great friend, Terry Katzman, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was really the man who, who kind of managed the store. Um, and uh, a couple other people that fill in uh, when Steve or Terry were available. Um, so uh, anyway, that's uh, Steve McClellan working at the counter. The gentleman who is uh, browsing through the record racks and picks up the sorry, copy of Sorry Mon, brings it up to the counter, is Kevin Cole, uh, who is uh, the program director at KEXP in Seattle and uh, was also uh, one of the main DJs at First Avenue. Uh, he and I did radio together many, many times over the years. One of my dearest friends, another dear friend. Um, so that's a great way to start it off. Of course, the convertible uh, is uh, owned by John Clifford, uh, who owns the Hi-Fi Hair and Records, and that's his dog uh, that's uh, that's featured in the in the clip. And uh, yeah, so those guys are in it. I'm trying to think of is Tommy Stinson's mother in it. His mom and oldest sister are in it. Mm -hmm. His mom Anita Stinson and uh, his sister Lonnie. And yeah, so they're actually uh, sitting. Uh, Anita's sitting on the steps and and. Lonnie is uh, uh, leaning against one of the posts um, in front of the first house that uh, the band Dog Breath practiced in. And it's where Westerberg famously used to walk by on his way home from work in his uh, janitor job downtown. And he would hear this thunderous noise coming out of the basement. And, and uh, little did he know these would be, uh, you know, the, the guys uh, that he would be playing with for the next 10 years. So, well, for everyone uh, listening to this podcast, the Taken a Ride video is basically uh, a, a mini history of the replacements, a guy driving around uh, Minneapolis, beautiful shots of the neighborhoods, uh, and, and the, the video will mark different buildings that were important to the replacements, whether it's 7th Street or the Stinson House. Your old apartment yeah. is featured in the video? Yeah. And it was uh, the uh, the band's unofficial headquarters. Yeah, I mean, we I, I had a, an apartment that was um, you know filled with records, and so they all hung out there, and we all listened to records, and you know got to know each other there really, and it, it sort of became the replacements' office. You know, Paul would come over, and you know because I'd be on the phone doing replacements business, he liked hearing what was going on. It was nice to have him there if I needed a question answered or I needed an okay on a. Uh, an offer for a gig that was coming up or, uh, you know, an offer of a, of, of maybe a, a, an appearance on the radio or something like that. So it was always nice to have Paul there and he was a record fiend and he would just sit next to my turntable and play records all day long while I was, you know, doing their business. So yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, um, and, and the building was, there were so many people in this music scene that lived there, Curtis A, who's, one of the great Minneapolis singers of all time lived downstairs. Uh, Tim Carr, who uh, worked at the Walker Art Center and later wrote record reviews for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He lived directly across the hall. Um, you know, one of the guys who worked at Orfolk with me lived up on the third floor. I mean, it was 
you know, the den of iniquity, as we like to say. And uh, um, there and, and there were times on the weekends, I mean, people would be running up and down from one apartment to another. Hey, if you got a bottle of scotch, I can borrow. Hey, we're out of beer, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just uh, every it was a wide open, you know, uh, happening music place. It was, it was a lot of fun. Do you ever remember playing a record for either Paul or Tommy or Bob or Chris or any one of them? You know, hey, guys, here's this British band called The Move. Or, hey, guys, here's this uh, old Chuck Berry record that no one has ever heard of. Like, did you ever present them with stuff that that um, might have been outside of their wheelhouse? Or All day, every day. All day, every day. <laughs> That's what we did. Right. Here's Peter Gabriel Genesis Foxtrot, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, they, definitely, uh, they definitely heard some stuff that they didn't like along the way, I'm sure. But, you know, we, you know, I tried to, you know, uh, contour my selections to uh, and, you know, they, they all liked slightly different things. You know, uh, Chris was really into NRBQ, for instance. And, uh, you know, Paul loved Marshall Crenshaw and uh, Mission of Burma. You know, Tommy got all excited about uh, Captain Beefheart records, and he loved uh, the band Squeeze. Um, Bob was uh, a, a, a big fan of, um, you know, the Beatles and Badfinger. And, uh, you know, besides the things that, you know, he's well known for liking, uh, Yes, and, and Johnny Winter and those sorts of things. But Bob was a, Bob was a real, um, I, I mean, he just sucked it all up. He loved reading the rock magazines and listen to music constantly he was yeah he was a, a real enthusiast a real fan as a fan of paul's every time i hear because i have a pretty good collection of 70s um music every time i hear here comes that rainy day feeling again by yeah. the fortunes i know that he loved that song and i can hear the influence of that kind of 70s am pop hit yeah, yeah, especially yeah. in his later work but i mean i know it's all it's all in this fantastic soup of influences there's a funny, there's a one funny thing you'll notice in the notes for the, uh, for the, um, uh, sorry, my album on the original album, there was an insert and in a sleeve that had Paul's handwritten notes, which I imagine you've seen, uh, they're reprinted in this box set. Uh, and at one point he was over right after we'd gotten test pressings of I'm in trouble, um, uh, the 45, and I had it sitting just to the side of my turntable. And uh, Paul and I were just listening to records. And at one point I was playing some old soul records and I had just played uh, um, Sweet Soul Music by Arthur Conley. And, and and the record ended and he just went, man, I ain't never going to be able to sing like that. Play Peter, play me something white and talentless. And so I just it just happened to be it was like a, a perfect timing on a joke kind of thing. I grabbed the chest pressing of I'm in trouble, put it on the turntable and boom, there it was. And he cracked up laughing, and so he mentions that in the liner notes. I think that's a that's a funny bit, but that's an example of of the kind of stuff we would do. He loved hearing, you know, those old. I was a I'm a big fan of uh, of of the great old soul and R and B hits, and I've got a you know thousands of forty fives, and and that was one of them. So amazing was Blackberry Way named after the Move song? Of course, <laughs> the Move were. I mean, my God, they were. There was probably a period, in, I don't know, the late late sixties, early seventies, where, I mean, practically everybody I knew thought they were, you know, one of the two or three best bands on the planet. I mean, the move were, yeah, undeniably powerful. All those, those singles they did at the end of uh, Chinatown and down on the Bay and, and, uh, uh, do ya, of course, you know, they were just, they were monster records. We, we were huge move fans. I'm going to the girl that wants to stop Why'd you pick this uh, version of Customer, Peter? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a different version. It's got, it might be sloppier than the one we put on the album, but it might also have a, a bit more just crazy, uncontrolled fire in it. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's an alternate version, just a really, really strong alternate version, I guess is what I'd say simply. I did this at my <laughs> first birthday concert that I, you know, I've said this on the podcast Many, many times uh, in the years before the pandemic, I would put together, I'm not a musician, but I would put together a band to, uh, for my birthday and get up and sing because I can do karaoke. And I would sort of curate the, the list with Black Sabbath and Van Halen. I saw you do one of those. Trick. It was wonderful. You did, uh, I, but you didn't see me do Customer. And now yeah. I'm mad that you weren't there the night that I did Customer. 
But I did it because it's one of my favorites. Because, you know, for me as a kid, when I heard, okay, I'm in love with a girl who works at the store, but I'm nothing but a customer. For me as a replacements fan, it was like, yeah, that's my existence. Yeah. That is literally my existence. I will go to that store every single day. I won't talk to her. I'll buy something I don't need, but I just want to be in the same space as her. So, like, that song hit me like a ton of bricks. So, who, who couldn't relate to a song like that? I mean, come on. Exactly. What's on sale? Yeah. Where are the Twinkies? <laughs> oh, man. Amazing. Um, was that a song that they would play live a lot back in the early days? That was a song they played every night. It was always one of the highlights of the set, and, and both for Paul's uh, just outrageous vocal and and bob's guitar solo i i think uh i think that's the one on the liner notes where paul wrote uh bob's lead is hotter than a urinary infection i mean it's uh <laughs> bob's solo is just out of this world do you remember the first big city or not big city but a- any medium-sized midwest town that you went to outside of minneapolis with the band oh yeah the first status town trip we did was uh december of 1980 we went to duluth uh, Minnesota uh, to open for uh, another twin tone band called the suburbs. Right. Yeah. And we played in a roller skating rink and uh, it was, uh, it was actually really cool. Uh, we had to, we didn't have a van yet. So I had to borrow a van to get up there and it was just, it was so much fun and they were so thrilled about, Oh my, you know, they're really like, it was kind of like being on the road, but it was only one show. And uh, one of the things that I remember very clearly about it was the soundboard was in the middle of the auditorium with all the people skating around it. And I was there at the soundboard, uh, you know, watching the show and trying to help the guy who was mixing, you know, like, here's the lead solo, please turn the guitar up here kind of thing. And uh, at one point, Paul was had the guitar around his neck and he uh, pulled the mic stand towards him and hit the neck of the guitar and snapped the neck of the guitar so that the headstock hit him in the head and cut his forehead. And so blood was coming down and he just peeled the guitar off and finished the song. And I believe that actually might've been, I hate music. And it was just, I mean, it was one of the great rock and roll moments of my whole life. It was just, again, it was like the timing. It was, uh, it was like I was watching a movie or something. And uh, so that was, that was one very clear memory I have of that night. Um, and, you know, we didn't have much money at the time. So a broken guitar was, you know, we were not very happy about that, but it was an accident. You know, it had happened, nothing we could do about it. So uh, the fact that it turned into a, you know, uh, sort of just a classic rock and roll moment is, uh, is um, you know, sort of a dividend. Uh, did anybody in the room care? No, probably not. I mean, I think they were all there to see the suburbs and they were kind of irritated at this uh, loud, fast uh you know, band with a, you know, 13 year old bass player, you know, playing at a deafening volume before they're the band they've really come to see, but what can you do? You know, did they get on, uh, with the suburbs? I mean, a lot has been written about their place in Minneapolis music history. I mean, how did those bands really feel about the replacements, the suicide commandos, the suburbs? Well, I think, uh, a combination, I mean, they didn't all feel the same way. I mean, the scene really started with the, the suicide commandos were the first big band. And then, a little bit later when they were breaking up the suburbs came came along and really basically it was almost as if the commandos handed the baton to the suburbs and then the suburbs became the biggest band in minneapolis there were a couple others that were also uh, right at the top of the heap um uh, a group called flamingo uh another favorite band of mine and uh this guy that i mentioned earlier curtis a who had various band band names originally was thumbs up and then they became spooks when we first recorded them from Twin Tone and stuff. But anyway, the suburbs became the next biggest band. And the suburbs just fell in love with the replacements right away. Uh, they had a little super group that they put together with a couple guys from the suburbs and they pulled Tommy Stinson in to play bass. And Slim Dunlap came in to play guitar before he was Slim. Of course, he was Bob Dunlap. Um, so uh, people really did. I think Tommy in particular made a lot of friends. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people, you know, because he was so young, wanted to take him under their wing, so to speak. So it was maybe a little bit of a novelty. But at the same time, you know, he was a smart kid. He was a great musician. He was cool looking. You know, why wouldn't you want to have him in your, you know, uh, side band or whatever? So um, so that probably added to it. But the suburbs genuinely loved and admired the replacements and were so good to us 
in those early days. And of course, I had, I'd signed the suburbs to Twin Tone as well. So you know, they, they were maybe a little bit beholden to me in that way. But, uh, but I, I don't think it was like an ass-kissing thing. They just genuinely loved the replacement. So we did lots of dates opening for the suburbs in many different places, especially Madison, Wisconsin. That was another place where the replacements really cut their teeth in the early days. Um, but, you know, to answer your question more fully, there were certainly other bands that had maybe been in line thinking, hey, you know, I'll, I think in the next year or so, we're probably going to work our way up to the top of the list and we're going to be making a record for Twin Tone. And when the replacements came along, they kind of blew a lot of those guys out of the water. And so there was some resentment. Uh, and there were, you know, just generally speaking, as in any scene, uh, there are people who feel like, well, you got to pay your dues before you get to make a record. And the replacements, you know, handed a four-song demo and then suddenly we're making an album and spending seven months off and on in the studio. That was unheard of at the time for any of the other bands. And that was, you know, that was for a number of reasons. Um, and, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I was just like, this is, this is a band that, uh, you know, I just felt it in my bones. And, and uh, you know, I've been wrong a million times in my life, but this was one where I, I was, I, I just knew it when I heard their stuff. And so, I was very, I was very pushy about it, I guess, in a, in a polite way. Well, well, here you are, forty years later, now releasing this new fucking amazing box set on Rhino Records. So let's move on to the next song that that uh, Peter picked from this incredible set. Oh, it's a big replacement song. It's Johnny's gonna die. Johnny always needs more than he takes. He owes a couple chords. I mean, it's just. Um, it's been talked about a lot over the years in, in the press, but um, we'd all gone to see Johnny Thunder's Bang War, a band that he uh, put together with Wayne Kramer, short-lived band. Um, and uh, they did one show in the small room, the 7th Street entry, one show in the main room, uh, First Avenue. And um, Johnny was not in good shape. He was, um, as most people know, he had a heroin problem, and, and uh, that certainly was the case in Minneapolis, I think. The second night he couldn't go on stage until he uh you know gotten something you know to uh and i don't know <clears throat> I, I don't know where one would buy heroin in those days so uh but uh he may not have gotten it i don't know it may have just been alcohol to quell his you know addiction or whatever but he was messed up by the time they went on stage and um it was still a thrill to see our hero johnny thunders but uh, he was a mess. And so the next day I remember checking in with Paul and just saying, Hey, what are you doing? And he said, uh, I just finished a new song. And I said, Oh yeah, what's it called? And he said, Johnny's going to die. And I gulped and, uh, I thought, wow. Okay. Uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, but when I did hear it a day or two later at rehearsal, it was their first soul song that they put into the mix. Most everything they'd done was, uh, you know, up-tempo rockabilly-ish, you know, punky Chuck Berry kind of stuff. So it was uh, it was uh, a pivotal song, really, that, uh, uh, you know, they became known, as you mentioned, the Faces, you know, were another band that had the rock and roll and the ballads and a really nice blend. And, and the replacements uh, had that same thing. And this was the first ballad that entered the picture. And the other interesting thing about the track that I picked here, this version of Johnny, is that uh, the, the uh, and I mentioned this in my email to you when I sent you the tracks, but, you know, for the people listening uh what I thought was cool about this was the song Johnny's Gonna Die has two guitar solos in it. And again, in the liner notes that Paul wrote, um, he mentions, you know, that Bob takes the first lead and he takes the second one. And that's the way it was whenever they did the song live. And Bob had figured out a part um, that was a real uh, kind of a circular riff that he did. And, you know, Bob rarely played the same thing twice, but in this case, it was a part that he liked, that everybody liked, that fit the song so well that it was most of the time he would do this uh, sort of riff thing uh, for his solo. He would play off of uh, the original piece that he you know, recorded for the album. And then Paul would take the second solo. And every time Paul did it, it was completely different. He didn't have a, an exact part and he would kind of wing it each time. And live, you know, there were some times where it wasn't particularly good, but a lot of, you know, most of the time it was really great. And in the case of these recordings, there are three different versions of the song. There's the one on the album. There's an alternate mix from the album. And then there's an uh, alternate version, which is, I believe, the one I sent you, complete alternate version of the song. Anyway, um, in all three of those instances, Paul's solo was just outrageously good. He nailed it each time in a different way. And this one, 
I just love the the structure of the solo. Uh, and again, it was improvised, so it wasn't like something that was probably written per se. But there's a little thing he does at the end where he just does this plucky little resolve on the on the track, and it's kind of like, okay, this is the the, the end of the solo. It was kind of a, a you know, the, the solo had a beginning, middle, and end, and I thought that was really a neat thing. So I thought that this might be a fun one for you to play on your show. Oh, absolutely. Oh, now you've got now that you've mentioned all that, I'm wondering. We know of big rock record producers. They might work the lead guitarist to death trying to get the right solo. They might sneak in another guitar player to get the right solo on a on a big rock record. When you went into the studio with replacements, a very young, <laughs> very young group of guys, you know, did you work those guys a little bit, or did you just go more by instinct, like that second or third take from Bob? I got it. I can move on. Well, I mean, I think we worked each other, I think, um, and they worked themselves. Uh, It was, of course, a lot of instinct, and that's a big word in the replacements history. Uh, They they were very instinctual and and often made really good choices uh, being instinctual. But um, they also, and again, you probably read some of this in the liner notes, they were a band that didn't want to look like they were trying hard, and yet underneath it all they were secretly really really trying hard and that was what was interesting about making that record was what we saw on stage you know that getting here i get this four song demo and it's just it's just so good i couldn't believe it i I really there was a moment where i honestly thought that somebody was playing a joke on me that they that this band has a record contract and somebody's just you know you know uh, pulling my leg that i don't really have the opportunity to sign this band to twin toe it was so good so they did that. And then when we brought them into the studio that first time in July, they played like a house on fire. And then when we said, OK, we're going to make an album, when they came in a couple months later, September of 80, I guess it was, um, the recordings were a little stiff and they were maybe trying a little too hard. They were maybe a little self-conscious. So it, it took a minute for them to get comfortable in the studio. And in the meantime, what we did was we thought, well, since these studio recordings are maybe not sounding as good as we wanted them to. The performances maybe weren't as great as we thought they could be. Let's maybe put them on a stage where they have played like the seventh street entry or uh, the Longhorn. And we had a mobile unit at the time twin tone. My twin tone partner was a recording nut. And so he put some recording gear in a motor home and, and, uh, and did some recording of all different kinds of music. He did choirs and some symphonies and different things around the cities uh, but, you know, of course, recorded a lot of rock bands. So we brought these trucks, this truck to uh, to these clubs during the day without an audience to see if we could capture them there. Miraculously, those recordings all sucked, too. So we circled back to Blackberry Way and thought, you know what? We're, it's not working to do it on the stage. Let's go back to Blackberry Way and give it another shot. And once the band had tried to do something that they thought might work and it didn't work, then they just quickly became comfortable in the recording studio and Blackberry Way really became a home for them. I mean, we made three of the four twin tone albums there. Um, and and then they even recorded uh, a lot of the demos for Pleased to Meet Me in Blackberry Way after I was no longer working with the band. So it was a place they got comfortable in and stayed comfortable for a long time. The thing that you described, they're working very hard, but but wanting everyone to think that they just, not that they didn't care, but that that you know, it wasn't the the thing that defined them, or however you want to phrase it. You you said it really well. That's why I love them so much, because yeah. naked ambition has always freaked me out. Even living in a city like Los Angeles, I bump into a lot of people who just have pure, unfiltered naked ambition. Like everything about them is, I am going to make it no matter what. I make friendships based on that drive. Every choice I make is made on that drive. And the reason that the replacements resonated to me as a young person, especially when I was in college, was I felt like, oh, here's a band that is just so naturally talented. Thank God they don't play the game. Thank God they don't care in the way that they communicated to the world. Uh, Thank God they're willing to sabotage themselves and that was it really really hooked me in and of course they wanted to make it everyone wants to make it 
But the fact that they just had this sort of ramshackle attitude, I think just made people love them. Am I wrong? I think you're absolutely right. And the, the key word there is they couldn't play the game. Of course, they wanted to make it, but they just refused to play the game. And that's where that, that's important to point out. Peter, tell me about your pretty when you're rude. Uh, well, um, there was a time in, I guess it would have been early 1981. So, you know, six, seven months into my getting to know the band and working with the band, when Paul started slipping me very much on the QT, solo, acoustic, guitar, and piano songs that he was doing in his parents' basement. And uh, he, I was specifically sworn to secrecy and I couldn't tell Bob Stinson because Paul was afraid Bob would think he was a wuss uh, for doing uh, these uh, singer songwriter kind of things. And, you know, I, I uh, you know, when I first heard the, the four song demo Paul had given me, I mean, I fell head over heels in love with him. I was already insanely wild about the band. But when he started giving me these solo things, I realized that his talent was so much broader than I had at first thought that it was it was really like a revelation to me and i mean i've said it before and i'll say it again that this solo stuff some of the solo stuff was so good that i was literally kind of frightened uh by how talented this guy was like i was like wait a minute can i really uh, this might be beyond my capability to work with somebody with a talent this massive uh, and in particular, I remember when he gave me a song called You're Getting Married, which is also on this box set, um, where I heard that and I just I was absolutely it just it just blew my mind. And um, so that became kind of a thing where, uh, you know, Paul would, you know, he lived 20 blocks south of me, didn't drive. So I know late at night he'd record one of these demos and he needed to get it out of the house before he erased it. And so he would run it over to my house, he would run 20 blocks and slip it through the doorway of my apartment and then take off. And this happened many times. And uh, so over the those couple of years, I got a, a, a large number of, of solo tracks that he gave me. And um, one of those tracks is this uh, tune called You're Pretty When You're Rude. And what I think is really interesting about this record is as you can hear, there's a kind of a finger-picking uh, acoustic guitar accompaniment uh, that I never heard Paul do before or after. And to me, if you can do that sort of thing, I'm just amazed that he would never have used it in another song someplace along the way. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting about it is that also in this set is a kind of working about five minutes of Paul working out the song, If Only You Were Lonely. And you can actually hear little pieces of what goes into You're Pretty When You're Rude in that as well. And you hear him stumbling and singing lines that he doesn't like. There's one point where he actually stops and laughs at himself for something that he sings and then comes back at it and puts in a new word there that worked better or whatever. And so You're Pretty When You're Rude and If Only You Were Lonely were kind of sister songs. And um, and I think that that makes it even all more interesting, I, I guess, uh, for maybe somebody listening that wouldn't know if Only You Lonely was sort of an important track because it was the B side of the single from I'm, uh, from uh, Sorry Ma. Uh, was, the A side was called I'm in Trouble. And I thought it would be great to do a non-LP B side. And I, since Paul had been giving me these solo things, I said, I know you don't want to talk about this in front of the band, but I think it'd be really cool to do one of your solo things on the B side. At first, he resisted and said, nah, that ain't the replacements. Uh, and then later thought maybe that would be a good idea. And so that's what If Only You're Lonely was. That was the first time we were able to put a solo Paul Westerberg song on a replacements record. And then You're Pretty When You're Rude is kind of from that same era. Well, Peter, that's, you know, again, uh, such an interesting decision that pays off in dividends for, pan for fans because If Only You Were Lonely basically becomes one of the most storied replacement songs and in the in the modern era the last time they toured that's one of the songs that everyone wanted to hear them do yeah isn't that amazing i mean it's funny because it was you know it was, we made i don't know a few thousand of the 45 and then it went out of print so people couldn't buy it and yet 
in later years, you would hear people screaming for the song or when Westerberg was after the band broke up and he was doing solo shows, people were hollering for If Only You Were Lonely Then. And I'm like, how do these people know this song? I mean, <laughs> yeah. at a certain point, you know, it started circulating on the internet, but in the early days, of course, there was no internet. So it was just, uh, it was one of those sort of um, handed down tracks, you know, somebody would somebody had the 45 taped it on a cassette for somebody who taped it on a cassette for somebody and you know uh, down the line it's crazy it's it's incredible um you know i was just thinking as you were talking too you know the beatles trajectory from i saw her standing there to uh you know my name look up the number or revolution number nine or some of the the end of uh, the their career sort of stuff you know that's a wild arc paul getting from I hate music to sadly beautiful, it's almost the same sort of wild trajectory. I agree with you. But, you know, as you said, early on, those gears were turning in his head. Yeah. So, amazing. All right, here's another phenomenal replacement song. It's it's Careless. (laughs) (laughs) Or Careless. (laughs) Right. A double entendre. Uh, a double entendre, if you will. So tell me why you chose this uh, this version of Careless. Well, this is just a, a part of the live set. Um, the last two songs that I uh, uh, that I sent you were both from the live recording, and I thought you just should have a taste of it. You know, by this time, you know, once the band got serious, uh, uh, you know, you know, when they when they realized that there was not only could they get bookings and actual rock clubs, but there was a possible record deal on the table. They just exploded. They were rehearsing hard. I mean, there were times where they were rehearsing four or five times a week. And so you go from the summer of 1980 to January of 1981, when this show was taped, they were a formidable rock and roll band by that time. And they played their asses off and they, that's all they wanted to do. They just wanted to play, play, play. And um, so this show I just, you know, we had the re- the recording here again. It was done uh, for a potential radio station broadcast. So we brought the mobile unit in to record it, although we didn't do a multi-track recording. We only did, again, a stereo two-channel direct uh, recording on it. And we also brought Steve Felstead, the engineer who was working with the band in the studio. We brought him in to mix the house uh, the front of house mix in the room of the Seventh Street entry while my partner Paul Stark was in the mobile unit taking the feed from from Felstead. So we have the really clean cassette copy uh, of the whole show. And uh, Careless is just one of the outstanding songs. I mean, it you know it has um, you know I, I don't I don't watch the TV. I watch the clock. I mean, it's like one of the one of Westerberg's greatest couplets, I think. Uh, and 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 a. a a line that, that when I first heard that, I was like, guy looks like a scruffy, you know, punk rock kid, but he's writing like an experienced, uh, you know, craftsman. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible line. And, uh, it was, a, it was a real find when we, when we tracked down this cassette and, um, and then also, uh, the fact that we had done a flyer for it, uh, which is also in the booklet for the, for the, uh, uh, for the box set, which is fun too, to not only have the live recording, but to have, the flyer that we made for the show and um they're a, a band that was also very good to the replacements in the early days called the dads were the opening band uh th- this night and uh and that's kind of fun because you can hear tommy talking on mic to you know guys from the dads who are out in the audience and whatnot and, and it just you know guys from the suburbs come in and you hear tommy talking uh to those guys as well is that chan bowling hi chan you know that kind of stuff it's just so it was, you know, it was, uh, it was our little home base there and, and all our friends came to the show and we got a good recording of it. So there you have it. You know, earlier you mentioned Madison and the first time you were on the, the Brando cast, you basically said that Madison was the replacements Hamburg. You know, the Beatles go to Hamburg and they learn how to play. They learn how to play live and they're playing in strip clubs and dive bars and for unruly audiences and they really hone their chops there. Um, why, why do you call Madison uh, the replacements Hamburg? Well, Madison, there was a club there called um, Merlin's second floor uh, club on State Street, one of the main drags of, uh, of Madison. Um, and the people who ran it, a husband and wife uh, team, were huge replacements fans. And they were so good to us as soon as we went there with 
uh, the suburbs, they wanted the replacements to come back as well. And so it just became one of those regular things. It was five hours from Minneapolis. We would often, as crazy as this sounds, drive to Madison, play a show, and then drive back afterwards. So I'd be dropping the band off at seven in the morning uh, and dropping the gear off and all that, uh, you know, after having driven all night. It was, but anyway, it was, it was so much fun. And um, I guess that, you know, when they're playing in their hometown, they feel a little bit under the microscope. They're, <coughs> excuse me, playing for people that have, you know, known them since they were in kindergarten kind of thing. And maybe that's a little constricting in some ways. How can they, you know, grow and, and, you know, do their rock and roll thing when they've got a bunch of kids like ready to call them out on it. Hey, you know, you're, you're looking too much like a rock star there. Are you trying to be Keith Richards or what, you know, sort of thing. And um, so when they go to Madison, they were playing in front of new people all the time and, and certainly developed a crowd of people that came back more than once, but it was just a place where they, uh, we got to go there a lot and always had a good audience and, it was everything from opening from the suburbs to opening for the damned. We opened for the damned uh, a couple of times in in, uh, in Madison. Uh, also, then when the replacements built up a following, they were able to bring their own uh, opening act. And in fact, uh, one of the great early shows was we brought this band called Loud Fast Rules along with us. And I, I remember specifically, this was at a time where uh, the band uh, the replacements had gotten far enough along that we weren't sleeping on people's floors in Madison. We were actually making enough money where we could get a hotel room or two. And, you know, we all squeeze in and, and end up somebody sleeping on the floor probably or in the closet or whatever. But, but at least we had a hotel room with a shower and things and didn't have to bother friends and, and sleep on couches and, and things. So I remember going uh, to Madison on this particular trip and, after sound check, we had gone back to the hotel. And then I said to the band, I said, I want to get back to the club early to see the loud fast guys. Um, so I'll see you at the club. And then Tommy said, Hey, I want to come with you. You know, so the two of us went early and when we got back to the club, you know, it was the opening act about to go on. There was not very many people in the room, you know, 10 or 15 people, maybe. And loud fast rules, who of course later became soul asylum, loud fast rules walked on stage and they hit it. I mean, they just exploded on stage. It was like they were playing in an arena full of screaming fans. They just played their asses up. And that was, both Tommy and I were just looking at each other going, holy shit, listen to these guys. And, you know, we were already fans and friends of the band. A couple of the guys went to high school with Tommy. So he knew them quite well, Dave Perner in particular. And so as soon as that set was over at Merlin's in Madison, Tommy and I marched back into the dressing room. And I just said to him, holy cow, you guys, we got to talk about making a record. And that's basically where Loud Fast got their record deal with Twin Tone. And, you know, that was one of those, like Dave Perner, I'll never forget him saying, he had been on the mailing list for Twin Tone to get our little newsletter. He was like, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world to be on Twin Tone's newsletter. It never occurred to me in a million years I'd be signed to the label as an artist. So, you know, that was another great moment of, of uh, you know, our, our history of going to Madison and our our love affair with the town of Madison. We had so much fun there. First place we ever saw gyros, you know, the Greek sandwich, you know, it was like <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. Wow. This is so uh, exotic. You know, uh, Teddy wedgers on state street, a pastry stuffed with ground beef. I, that one of the best shows I've ever seen. And I've said this, I think I've said this on the podcast was soul asylum, hang time era soul asylum at the student union in Madison. Uh, uh, and Holy Christ. Kids were like just like hanging from the ceiling. I mean, I think that beers in the student union were 50 cents. You know, this is 87, 88, maybe early 89, somewhere in there. But oh my God, um, what a night. I mean, Soul Asylum in Madison. I mean, crazy. Madison's a great rock and roll town, always was. Madison is a great rock and roll town. All right, last song. Just a quick thoughts about Peter. You know, if you're a fan of the replacements, you know they love covers. Uh, we're including their cover of All Day and All the Night by the Kinks. It's from the box set. Peter, tell me about this cover. Well, this is just another one that they did almost every night for the first year, year and a half of their existence, and uh, another opportunity for Bob Stinson to take a wild-ass lead solo. And um, 
And actually, there's some, uh, you can hear Paul at one point, uh, his amp goes out and he actually sings, Girl, I Want to Fix Your Amp in the Daytime. Um, and then, but miraculously, the amp comes back on at some point through the song. So that's good. Um, but it's just another fantastic version. I mean, there were times where their covers were the highlights of their set. Um, as much as I loved all of the original songs they were doing, when they would introduce a fresh new cover, you know, whether it be all day and all of the night, or I remember when they started playing, of all things, Rock Around the Clock, you would think, well, this is just a corny, uh, you know, cliched uh, rock and roll song. The replacements did it. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was, they, they would, uh, you know, knock it out of the park, so to, so to speak. So uh, all day and all the night was just one of the highlights of the early shows. And, and it comes very near the end of this set that uh, we've included the entire, you know, show in this box set. So, yeah, I thought you'd, uh, you'd get a kick out of it. Uh, I get a kick out of it because I, for many, many years, the one album that is lost to the sands of time for me was that bootleg that the shit hits the fans bootleg yeah. recorded at a show in Oklahoma. Yep. And I think on that one, uh, they start playing merry-go-round by Motley Crue, <laughs> <laughs> which made no sense at all that they would even know about Motley Crue. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, live replacements doing covers. I would imagine that Paul may have used uh, changed lyrics to communicate things to band members during songs. No, absolutely. I mean, he was always, uh, for one reason, for one thing, he didn't always, you know, learn the words you know, as as originally written. I, I remember our first roadie, a guy named Lou Santa Croce. I, I have a very vivid image in my head of, um, uh, we used to play a place um, called the Caboose in Minneapolis, and uh, the replacements had been uh, goofing around with Maybelline, and Lou would always say to Paul, why don't you fucking learn the words to it? You're just, you know, you're, it's such a, it's a, such a good lyric, you know, just take an extra minute and, and memorize those lyrics, Paul, and Paul would just never do it. So at one point they were, they launched into Maybelline at the Caboose and Lou was right up front and he pulled out this poster, which he'd written the lyrics to Maybelline on big enough for Paul to read from, uh, from in front. And so Paul actually got the lyrics right on the one performance there. That was that was pretty funny, but yeah. So Paul didn't always take the time to learn him. I mean, that's just what the kind of guy he was, I guess. Yeah, it's how. Well, it's it's why we love him. It's, it's, <laughs> one of, it's why one we of love many him. reasons. One of the many reasons why we love him, Peter. I have kept you for over an hour. This is all I want to do. This is all <laughs> I want to do in life. I don't want to do anything else but talk to Peter Jesperson about <laughs> the replacements and and of course this fantastic. Uh, special edition of Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, uh, coming out on October 22nd on Rhino Records. It's filled with so many goodies. So many people, including Peter, worked so hard to put this together. Uh, and as a Replacements fan, all I can say is thank you. Well, as a Replacements fan, I thank you, too. It's great to talk to somebody who loves them like I do. Yeah, well, I love them so much that I tried to dress like Paul and Tommy <laughs> when I was in college. But Tommy's too hard because uh, late 80s Tommy was wearing a lot of creepers yeah. and really cool vintage like tuxedo jackets. Yeah. And that's a hard one to pull off. And the hair. You can't do Tommy's hair if you're not Tommy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I wore ripped jeans and flannels because of that band. Well, I applaud you. Thank you. <laughs> and I applaud you. Um, is there anything else that you want to promote or, or put out there as we wrap things up? I guess one thing, it's funny, we've done a couple of podcasts on this record, um, and, and one of the things I've forgotten to say in both of the, the, the others uh, were um, the fact that the remastering of this record is, I think, crucial to the box set. And I was, when it was mastered, I listened to it and I thought, this is incredible, but to hear it actually in the, you know, pressed CD and everything, it occurs to me that I don't think that this album has ever sounded better. And a lot of credit goes to the gentleman who mastered his name is Justin Perkins. And he has a place called mystery room mastering in Milwaukee. Uh, and he also was uh, the bass player of bash and pop for a short time. And that's how I met him. And uh, he, and Tommy thought he was so good that he had him mastered, you know, a lot of the recordings that he was doing. And so when we started working on these replacement sets with Rhino, um, you know, you can spend a lot of money, uh, going to uh, 
Sterling in New York or Bernie Grunman in L.A., uh, and they do a fantastic job, no question about it. But somebody like Justin Perkins is such a fan of the replacements, and I think he just gave it that extra uh, TLC that you might not have gotten from somebody else. And I, and I honestly think this is the best that Sorry Ma has ever sounded. And uh, I think it's going to be the, hopefully from here on out, it's going to be if you go to, you know, uh, stream the album or you go to purchase a download of the album, it's going to be this mastered version because I think it's just so spectacular. So well, anyway, just wanted I, to give Justin Perkins credit for that. Well, a shout out to Justin. If you ever hear this podcast, Justin, uh, thank you for your hard work. And I will say, I really feel like there's another replacements buzz going on. It, it just really feels like the the world is being shown that there was this incredible band right under their noses. Uh, and for those people that didn't get to experience them the first time around, or for young kids who you know just find stuff out there um, on the internet, whatever, it feels like there's a great replacements buzz. So again, thank you. I mean, I really can't wait for the next project. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you always. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike, but if, I mean, how can you beat Peter Jesperson? Uh, you, you can't. Uh, and of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. Uh, Peter, I'm going to play us out with Shut Up, uh, which was another video made for this release, the animated video for Shut Up. It's fantastic as well. So when you're done listening to this podcast, go to YouTube and watch them all. Uh, Till the next time, cats and kittens. Ooh.